Good to see you all. Katsupi, how koto? How you doing? A few Katsupis, a few nothings. Cool. Um, Buenos dias. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Hola, Wikitoria. Good to see you. Um, como estas? Bien. All right, all good. Um, don't forget, if you're a visitor, this service is being, is being translated um, into Spanish. So if you hear someone mumbling at the back, they're translating. They're not mumbling. So don't like, get really angry and like, give them evil stares, right? They're being super helpful. So, Hey, good to see Anne Kilda podcast folks. How are you doing? We're doing great. Oh, awesome. Okay. <laughs> Have a good day, podcast people. Um, super good. Um, hey, so we're in Esther, the book of Esther, eh? which I'm super excited to preach on. And I have to start with a bit of a disclaimer. So um, I'm going to say terrible things about Esther and Mordecai twice in my message. And I know a lot of people are like, Esther, Esther, Esther is like the best person in the world. So I'm going to say terrible things about her because that's just the reality. But in the second half of the book, she's the hero and amazing and we love her. But at the beginning, it's kind of like, Esther, terrible. So if you're like an Esther lover, don't like, judge me and say horrible things to me. That would be good. Um, don't, I don't know, go and burn my house down. We don't even own it yet, so if you burn it down, the person that owns it will be ticked. So that'll be kind of shocking. Hey, um, you can see uh, kind of the, the main like, theme that we think uh, comes out in this book. And I'm going to talk a lot about this this morning. So God is always at work on behalf of his people, right? God is always at work on behalf of his people. And one of the things you see again and again in this book is that even when people are living in disobedience, which is what we're going to see this morning, God's still got them, right? He still cares them. He still blesses them. Um, and even when it feels like God is distant and he's far away and where has he gone, God is still close and he's still caring for people, right? Does it make sense, eh? Because you're going to see that again and again through Esther. It's like, what is happening? And then all of a sudden God's like, ta-da! And you're like, whoa, where'd he come from, right? It's awesome. So let me start with a crazy story talking about um, it feeling like God was far away, but then God was like right there in the middle of it all, right? So uh, as you all know, uh, Joseph and I used to live in the States uh, for a whole bunch of years. And we lived in Chicago for a long time, and we lived in a real bad part of Chicago, like I've told you, right? Terrible part. And so um, this is a horrible racist thing, but uh, back in the 60s, 70s, the American government created things called projects, and they just built these really horrible, massive high-rises and put all the African-Americans, or not all, but a lot of the more poor African-Americans and a lot of American cities into these things called projects. And they're just horrible, bad places. And uh, Jason and I lived right on the edge of one because it was really cheap. Um, but it was real dangerous. It was a horrible area. And like one time we were walking through um, one of the projects, and this is a long story, which I won't tell you, and a cop screamed and pulled over and just went off his head at us because we were walking through that area, and we were white. And he said, they will shoot you. What are you doing? Get in the car. And then screamed off in his cop car with us. New Zealanders like, oh, what's happening? Oh. <laughs> so we're living in this crazy area. And um, a good friend of ours, Gary, who was from England, who was also studying at the same university as us in Chicago, uh, was coming around to visit us and drop some stuff off. And on his way to see us, he got mugged. And he was mugged at gunpoint, which is extra scary. Um, not that I've been mugged, so I don't know. And I guess any mugging is pretty terrifying. But anyway, he was, um, it was pretty scary. So um, a couple of guys jumped him and put a gun in his gut. And were like, give us all your stuff. So give us your jacket and your shoes and your wallet and your watch and blah, blah, blah. So he said he was freaking out. He was totally expecting to be shot or beaten or something. He was really terrified. Um, so he gave him his jacket and all his stuff, obviously no argument, gave them all his stuff, and then one of the guys said, what is a white guy like you doing here? Because again, not a lot of white people um, went down that area. And he said, oh, I'm studying at Moody, um, it's Bible Institute, so the, the university that we were studying at as well, which is a, like a massive Christian university. And he said, straight away, the guys just went, oh, 
bro, we didn't know. And they gave him his jacket and his wallet and all his stuff back. And then he said they went the whole way down the street backwards going, we're so sorry, bro. We didn't know. We're so sorry. We didn't know. So then Gary turned up to our apartment and he was like white, like a ghost. And just he was like shaking like anything. We're like, what happened? He's like, I'm not really sure. I kind of got mugged, but then I didn't. And so he rang the cops and the cops came around and they're like, we don't even know how to write this up because you were technically mugged, but not because they didn't take what the heck's going on. Um, the thing I love about that, that's a true story, right? The thing I love about that weird story is God totally had Gary, right? Totally had him. The thing I loved was the cops just going, he talked to them for quite a while because they were just like, this never happens. No one ever gets mugged at gunpoint and then A, gets all their stuff back, but B, then the bad guys are like, you know, walking off down the road backwards. We're so sorry, we're so sorry. Um, so often it can feel like God's forgotten us, right? Or God's left us or God's deserted us or something. And often we're foolishly based it on what we're doing at the time, right? And we go, oh, God's forgotten me, God's left me. Hang on, it must be because I've done some evil sin or I'm living in dis- or something weird. And um, one of the things I'm going to talk about this morning is that God's, our relationship with God is affected by the, way, the things we do, but the love for, that God has for us is never changes, right? The love God has for us is totally not dependent on what I'm doing, on my situation, right? And that's one of the things we're going to see as we go through this book of Esther. So we're going to read a whole bunch of it. You've got those cool little um, bookmarks. Oh, it's such a cool book to read, and it's really easy. It's not like not to be rude to the rest of the Bible, but there are chunks of the Bible that when you try and read it, you're like, oh my gosh, A, I have no idea what's going on. B, I just have no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, but Esther's not like that. Esther's a really cool one where you can like, you can read it. It's like reading a, a book, because it is a book. Huh, who would have thought Hey, so we're going to read some um, this morning. So I've kind of, I'm doing chapter one and half, or a bit of chapter two. And I gave chapter one uh, this kind of um, little heading thing. Shallowness and power versus powerless courage. So shallowness and power versus powerless courage. And that's what we're going to see um, through this first chapter. So we're just going to read a bit. I'll explain it and we'll read a bit. So let's read um, the first four verses. So I put up there, where in history are we? Are we? So w- what's going on at this time in um, the planet, right? So if you've got your Bible, bounce over to Esther, chapter 1. Always good to follow along. Um, so Esther, chapter 1, we're just going to read the first four verses. And it's, it's real easy to see exactly what's going on. Uh, and there's lots of extra um, biblical evidence for all this stuff too, which is really cool. So it's evidence outside the Bible that um, lets us know exactly what was happening. So I'll read these first four verses. Uh, these events are the events that are going to come. Happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. Just stop for a minute and go, whoa. Is that good? Man, you're allowed to do so, like even a tiny bit of audience participation. So can you just go, whoa. That's a long, that's a big area, right? India to Ethiopia. It's like, I, I'm pretty useless with world geography, so I got out like a map to look. And I was like, man, that's huge. That, imagine trying to rule over that giant area. So he's... King Xerxes is pretty legit, right? Um, verse 2, at that time Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. And I love this next bit. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous, that's a party, right? Anyone partied for 180 days? Some of the impactors, uni students, Josh, not quite, nearly, nah. Not even close? Okay, fine. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous... I love this, how the New Living Translation says this. 
a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. <laughs> this is really cool, eh? Um, so where is this happening? When is this happening? I was going to kind of explain it, and then I was like, ah, I found this really cool quote that just breaks it all down. So let me kind of just read this um, quote. It's on two slides. Um, but this kind of helps us anchor it, like when in history is all this happening and what's going on. See so the first bit. Uh, the book takes place in the Persian period. So the Persia, Persian period, they ruled from uh, 539 to 331 BC. After many Israelites have returned from the exile to the land of Palestine to rebuild the temple and set up the sacrificial system. Most Israelite captives, however, chose not to return to their homeland. They should have done so, for Isaiah and Jeremiah had urged the yet-to-be-exiled nation, so before they went into exile, to come out of Babylon after 70 years and return to the place where the Lord could bless them under the covenantal promises. So just a quick little bit of history. Um, so uh, before the exile, Israel had separated into two parts, right? So you had the 10 northern tribes that was called Israel, and then you had the bottom two that was called Judah, okay? And so around, five, around 726-ish um, BC, so remember BC, you work backwards to zero. It's all very confusing. Um, so around 726-ish um, BC, Israel gets conquered, and they disappear. And it's like, oh, they're gone and lost, right? And then around 580, 586 um, BC is when Judah goes into exile, so the bottom two. So the top two disappeared in the early 700s. Does it make sense? So 150 so years later, um, Judah disappears. And that's when Daniel goes, right? We're all like, yeah, Daniel, Daniel, okay? So around 586, Daniel goes into captivity. And already the prophets had said that Israel and, and Judah, because they're living in disobedience before God, they would be destroyed. They'll be taken away by other nations, right? So they kind of should have been expecting it and should have repented, but they didn't because they're gooses, right? Um, and so 586-ish, uh, they go into captivity in Babylon. That's Daniel. They all disappear. Uh, and then 70 years later is when they were to return. And so there's a lot of writings in the Old Testament um, before this time and around this time saying that Israel should return back to the promised land. It's the land where God wants them to be, to be blessed by him, right? And we, we know that, right? It's called the promised land, the land of blessing and all this cool stuff. And the whole reason for that is that God wanted the Jewish nation to be one awesome light, um, to the nations, right? You read that phrase, a light to the nations, again and again in the Old Testament. And so the idea is that even though they go into captivity, they should learn a lesson and stop worshipping idols and stuff. The idea is they're all meant to come back to the land of Israel where God can bless them, provide for them, where he can rule over them, guide them, direct them. And the idea is that he would bless them so much that all the nations around them would just be like, hang on, hang on. How come when you guys plant crops, you just have like... <laughs> food everywhere. Why? Oh, because God's blessing us. Okay, hang on. How come when your sheep have lambs, there's like, every time there's 10 lambs pop out? No, no, no. Then sheep would probably explode. You know what I mean? It's like, it's meant to be just blessing, blessing. Why? Oh, because God has got us. God is watching over us. Really? Tell me about this God. What is the, That's the idea, right? And so there's this real clear message in the Old Testament that to, after the exile, to not return is really bad. It's like, you're basically saying to God, now, nah, either I don't believe in you or I don't want your blessing or whatever. So this is the first negative thing about Esther and Mordecai. Again, if you love Esther, don't beat me up too much. Um, is that Esther's living in disobedience and Mordecai. They've been called very clearly by God to return to the land of promise where God wants them to be so he can bless them and they can be a light and all this cool stuff. And Esther and Mordecai, along with a whole bunch of other Jews, have basically said to God, <laughs> nah, we're good, thanks. We don't want that. We're happy here. We want to live here. So, cool. That makes sense, eh? You with me? 
shot team. Okay, so here's the second part of the quote, which says what I just said, but I wanted to kind of unpack it a bit before you. Okay, so Esther and Mordecai had not returned to the land and did not seem interested in complying with the prophetic command to return. The Persian monarch mentioned in the book of Esther is Xerxes, a strong, effective ruler. The events in this book occurred between those recorded in Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. The events in the book of Esther extend over a decade, which is kind of wild, eh? So the book's like over um, 10 years from uh, 483 BC, because it talks about Xerxes' third year in Esther chapter 1, to 473, uh, the end of Xerxes' 12th year, which you read in 3.7. So it's over quite a long um, time. So that helps us kind of lock it down. When is this happening? What's kind of going on um, during this whole time? One of the big things I want to keep talking about, and I mentioned this a little bit before, is that so Esther and Mordecai are literally living in disobedience at this time, right? So one of the things, and heaps of you will know this, in the book of Esther, you never hear the name of God. You never hear prayer. You never hear the temple mentioned. You never hear the sacrifices mentioned, which is just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. Every other book in the Old Testament is just filled with prayer, filled talking about the temple, because that's the place of worship where we go to connect with God, talk about sacrifices. That's how we get rid of our sin. And then you get to the book of Esther, and it's like, what? It's like, why? And the answer is because at this time, Esther, Mordecai, and the other Jews are like, eh, God, eh, he's cool. We kind of believe in him, but not enough to obey him. It's kind of like, whoa, this is really weird. So that's why they don't talk about praying to God. That's why they don't talk about um, the temple, the, the sacrifice. You go and read Ezra and Nehemiah, books that are happening at the same time as this, just filled with prayer. We've got to get the sacrifice. We've got to get... It's just so, so one of the things I want you to, to know... And this is what the whole theme of the book is, I think, is even though Esther and Mordecai are living in disobedience, God still loves them like crazy. He still loves them like crazy, right? One of the things that I grew up hearing, and I don't know whether people said it or you just kind of believed it or something, I don't know, was that, that God only really blesses you when you're being good. <laughs> and if you're being bad and sinning, then God's kind of like, I'm just totally going to forget about you. And one of the things you're going to see clearly in the book of Esther is even though they're living in disobedience, they are directly, clearly disobeying God, God still loves them like crazy. God still blesses them. His hand is still so, we're going to see it in chapter 2 in a minute. His hand is so clearly on them. And it, it has to make us step back and go, okay, okay, I can't, when, when bad things are happening to me, I can't instantly go, oh, it's because I'm sinning, because it just doesn't work like that. God's love for me never, ever changes, right? Never, ever changes. Um, I'll pick on Mahalia, right? Because this is a, no, I'll pick on me, because I'm going to say a horrible thing. I better not talk about Mahalia. I'll pick on me. This is the crazy thing, right? God loves me 100% all the time. I, he cannot love me more, and he will never love me, love me less. Makes sense, yeah? So the reality of that, and this is a terrible thing to, to think about, I think, but the reality of that is that when I am in church, or I'm having my quiet time, and I am just like, oh, man, I just love being a Christian. This is so cool. I'm just so close to God. I'm filled with worship. I'm just like, Jesus, Jesus. God loves me 100%. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, but when I'm over here doing the worst sin I can possibly think of, and I'm deliberately disobeying God and I am being evil, God still loves me 100%. Because <laughs> His love never changes depending on what I do. His love for me is constant, right? Now, this affects the relationship. When I'm over here being an idiot, that totally messes up my relationship with God. I'm like, where is God? I can't hear Him. Does He even exist? You know, all that stuff. 
but his love for me never, ever changes, right? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Three people are with me. Thank you, three people. So, and you see that through the book of Esther. So you've got to keep remembering they are living in disobedience, clearly, right? But yet the hand of God is just on them, on them, on them. I love it. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Um, Esther 1, 10 to 12. And I, I put the heading there, nothing but a crown, with a grimacing emoji, because who really knows, but we'll talk about it, it's kind of wild. This is quite a rude, the first two chapters are quite disgusting and evil, but I'm kind of skipping over some of the really shady bits. So let's read 10 to 12. Um, so context, so he had this 180-day feast, and that was for everyone, and now there's another seven-day feast just for people that are living in the fortress of um, Susa, right? So just these people. So verse 10 says, on the seventh day, sorry, on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, a.k.a. drunk, all right? Because there's a lot of stuff in here about him drinking a lot of wine. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, whose names I'm not even going to attempt, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He want, This is so, I hate this next verse. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. I'm like, seriously, Xerxes, you're shocking. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And I love this next line. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Read like, tacked, right? Because he's, he's pretty smashed, and now his wife's saying to him, and I'm just like, he's not very happy at all. Um, the reason I put up there nothing but a crown is that it's real funny. So I obviously did heaps of reading and research and, and stuff this week. And it's real funny because some of the commentators are like, nah, the whole reason that she says no is because he only wants her to wear a crown, like nothing else. And so the idea is he's saying she needs to come totally starkers and parade around, and he's like going, check out my whole wife, you guys don't have her. And everyone's like, man, you're amazing, King Xerxes. Not only do you have all these possessions, but look at your fox of a wife. And I'm like, oh. So that's one idea. The other idea, which I go with, um, is more, he's just saying she's part of his possessions, so if you read chapter 1, which hopefully you'll read um, this week, when you read it, you'll see the, the author just keeps commenting about how Xerxes is trying to show off all his wealth and his awesomeness and his possessions and blah, blah, blah. And when people come, they can drink as much as they want because he's got so much wine and there's all this crazy stuff. And there seems to be this real clear message in this first part of him saying, I am amazing because look at all my stuff. And now, check out the crowning achievement. See what I did there? With... Did you see that? No? Yeah, cool, thanks. Um, with my fox of a wife, because she's also my possession. And why the author says that she comes wearing the crown is because it's showing that he is the king and she's just part of his possession. So check out my wine, check out my amazing everything, check out, it's just another possession. And so the idea seems to be that Vashti is just like, bro, you're pretty disgusting, not really loving you a lot right now, because she's having her own little party, because I think she, he's so disgusting. Um, and then when he asks her to come, that she's just like, man, I'm not property. I'm not coming, right? So that seems to be one of the little things going on in this book, that he's just finding so much um, meaning, so much identity, so much whatever in, in the stuff he has, right? I think that makes sense, eh? Um, it's kind of an obvious jump, but I, every time I was studying this week, I just keep landing on this little point. I think it's, a good, it's good to occasionally stop and evaluate why we have stuff, does it make sense, eh? So having stuff is not bad, right? The Bible never says if you're rich, you're evil, or if you have a giant house, you're evil, or anything stupid like that. But what the Bible does say is that the, the love of money or the pursuit of money is what's evil. That's what messes us up, right? So just because you've got a lot of money doesn't mean to say you're evil. Just because you have 
five houses, ten cars, doesn't mean you're evil. The whole question is, and this is what you see with Xerxes, is the why. Why do you drive that certain car you have? Why do you have this certain house? Why do you have this certain couch? Why do you have the certain shoes? Whatever it is. Do you have it? Because you're like, man, I've worked my butt off and God's blessed me and I'm real generous with my money and I serve God and stuff and we can afford to have a really nice house. <laughs> and if that's it, it's like, woohoo. But if it's like, oh, I love it when people come around and they walk in the front door and they're just like, whoa, you are amazing because of your house. You know, it's like, really? I don't think anyone actually thinks that, but we think that, right? Um, do you have a really nice car so that when the men go bowling on Friday night as we did, you can just be a little bit late and just drive past as they're all going into the bowling thing and wave and you're like flash as car so that they're all like, whoa, check you out in your sweet Holden because all other cars are rubbish. Yes, Mike? Can I get an amen, Mike? Yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah, Andrew, of course, Drew. It's just that why. So all I, I just thought real quickly, it's good to just step back every now and then and just evaluate because what happens is we just kind of slither around and we buy things and get possessions around us and stuff and, and then we don't think. So it's just that even and then stopping and thinking, why do I have the stuff I have? Why do I have the car I have? Is it like, yeah, just God's blessed me and I just got a really sweet car, it's cool. Or is it because it's trying to impress, right? Why do I have the house? Why do I have the shoes? Why do I have the whatever? What's going on? Because you see real clearly in chapter one here, um, Xerxes is all about his, his possessions and, and how amazing he is because of what he owns. Um, a terrible, terrible story, but kind of funny in its terribleness. Um, when Jason and I got back from the States, we were super broke, right? We were poorer than a thousand poors. And the dumb thing was, all our, we'd been over there for seven years, so all our friends had kept working and earning money and stuff. So that all moved seven years ahead in money, if that makes sense. So they had much, like, pretty legit cars and houses and all this kind of stuff. And we were, like, hilariously broke, which was all we didn't care about. It was all good. And so we used to just buy rubbish cars. So we'd buy a car off Trade Me for, like, less than 500 bucks and drive it till it blew up and then buy another one. And it was all good. And then this is a terrible story, but it's kind of like, really? Um, so I was pastoring in Cambridge, and I drove a, a ready-to-go, oh my gosh, best car ever. Are you ready? The, audience participation, yes? yes. Man, shots. <laughs> um, I was driving a 1977 Datsun Sunny, right? So <laughs> if you're like in the impact crew, you're like, oh, what the heck? So Datsun Sunny was like the squarest car in the history of square cars. I think it had like an 800cc engine, so you put your foot down, and then like 10 minutes later, you're like, and we're accelerating, you know, it was just crazy. One day, some birds, I don't know how it happened, a bird died in the air vent thing, so for about six months, I just could not turn on my vents, because just stinky, rotten bird came out, so it was a pretty legit car. The best thing about it was the colour, brown, right? Why did they ever have brown cars? And Joseph's mum, who I love and is amazing, she always called it the Poo-mobile. And so whenever I turned up, she'd be like, hey, it's Craig in the Poo-mobile, which, like, if I wasn't, like, embarrassed enough about my car. But I loved it. It was a great car. I didn't care. It was awesome. So anyway, long story. So one day I was at church. We're talking about possessions, bringing identity and stuff, right? Um, one day I was at church, and quite a wealthy couple came up to me after church, and they said, this is legit what they said. They said, oh, it's so cool that you and Joseph are poor and that you drive such a horrible car because it makes the poor people in church just feel like they can connect and be part of our church. And I was just like, I was so shocked. I literally just was like, uh, uh, and I just walked away because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you think because you're wealthier. They were quite wealthy that you can connect with the rich people, but because I'm 
I was just like, what the heck? And they had sold in my car, which made it even worse, right? The Pumo meal. So it's just good to stop every now and then, you know, why do we drive what we drive? Why do we live, you know, what's going on here? Cool. Hey, so this is just a little comparison. I thought it was real interesting. Tina put some cool stuff together, and one thing she put together was a little comparison. And this is kind of where you land at the end of chapter one. The character of King Xerxes is pride, power, wealth, excess, alcohol, control, anger, weak leadership, lack of authority, because he doesn't have that authority over Vashti. Whereas Vashti on the other side is objectified. She's beautiful. She's controlled, courageous, relatively powerless. And then in the end, she's condemned. And that's how the chapter ends, right? He's ticked. um, He's embarrassed. And so she's deposed. So she's no longer the queen. Um, And then there's this hilarious verse at the beginning of... um, Chapter 2, so chapter 2, verse 1, I just love this. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what a fox she was. Oh, no, that's me. And what she, not that I'm the fox, I put that in. And what she had done and the decree he'd made. In other words, he's like, oh, man, I kicked out my wife who was amazing. What was I doing? Hey, so you jump into chapter 2. Disobedience to God doesn't discount his blessing, right? And that's one of the things I've been talking about, right? Disobedience to God doesn't discount his blessing. Remember, because his blessing is based on his love for us, not necessarily on what we're doing. Okay, so let's read a little bit more. So let's read um, Esther chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. And I gave it this weird little thing. Where's God gone? What's going on here? So let's read um, verse 5 of chapter 2. At that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jar. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Cush and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the time of Daniel, right? This man had a very beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her uh, as his own daughter. So this little section's real interesting, right? For some of you, you're like, oh, I don't care. Um, but just give some context to who the heck is Mordecai and Esther and what's going on. Um, so when it says that he was, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, we're like, oh, cool, we can understand where that fits and everything. Um, he's from the tribe of Cush. So Cush is so Saul, King Saul, his father. This is talking about his father. So you're like, oh, I can see where they start kind of fitting in. Um, kind of interesting, right? And again, that whole timing. So his family leaves at the same time as Daniel, so 586. And so we're almost exactly 100 years um, on, right? So they should have returned, but they haven't. They're living in disobedience, all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, One of the things that that you keep seeing, though, is that God is watching over them. God is blessing them. And so this next bit that we're going to read, I read over it a bunch of times, and every time I'm like, man, you cannot argue that's not the hand of God blessing them, right? So let's read the next one. So um, we'll carry on in chapter 2. So we're going to read 8 to 11 and then um, 16 to 18. And I put this little, the little heading there, whoa, is this the hand of God? Because I'm like, man, as I read this, I, to me it's like such a clear like, hand of God. God's totally all over the place. Um, so where are we going? 8 to 11. Uh, as a result of the king's decree, Esther along with many other, oh, so sorry, context. So he's missing Vashti, the fox, and he's like, no, what am I going to do? And his attendants have a brilliant idea of basically getting every beautiful woman in the country, which would have been thousands, uh, to come into the harem. And then he just sleeps with a different one each night, which, again, the whole beginning of the book is disgusting. And then when he finds one that he really likes, then that's the one he'll marry, right? And so he's got boxes and boxes of wives in these various harems. So as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, uh, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Hegai's care. 
Hegel was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai directed her not to do so. Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. So there's this whole secret thing going on about them being Jewish, which will come out in um, future chapters. Um, as I read this, in chapter 9, I'm going to read it again, I just can't get away from the fact this has to be the hand of God. This is not just like, oh, what a coincidence, right? Hegai was very impressed with Esther, treated her kindly, ordered a special menu for her, provided her with beauty treatments. He assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, moved her and her maids into the best. <laughs> it's like, how many times can you say best in them? It's like, I just love this. Again, Esther and Mordecai are living in disobedience against God. They're saying to God, no, we don't want to do what you say. But yet, because God loves Esther so much, he does this best, 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 bless, 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 bless. I just love that. Kia ora, bro. How are you doing? I mean, he... Thanks, man. You're the man. Just to remind everyone, Esther Bookmarks, that was pre-planned. Shop, bro. So good. But you see what I'm saying, eh? It's like God should be saying, no, you're living in disobedience, punishment, ah, wrath, flaming, you know. But he doesn't because he loves Esther and Mordecai, blesses them. Um, again, there would have been thousands of women brought in, and so there's just no way you can look at that and be like, oh, just kind of happened. There would have been a ton of women that were beautiful, a ton of women that were really nice. But I think God's hand is just really on Esther. Um, the second horrible thing I want to say about Esther is, um, so the first one, they're living in disobedience. This is the second one. In reading and studying this this week, a lot of the, the commentators and the wise people uh, talk about how the author is making a really clear comparison between Daniel and Esther here, Right? So between Daniel and Esther. And so what they're saying is that uh, both Daniel and Esther are taken into captivity as exiles. Both of them are put into the service of the king. But that's where the comparison stops. And then you see this massive difference. So Daniel, who we all love, Daniel then does everything he can to stay pure to God. He refuses to eat the food. He keeps on praying even when he's going to be just about killed. He, he just keeps saying, nope, I'm set apart for God. I will follow God. And God blesses him like crazy, Right. But then you compare that with Esther. Again, we love Esther, but this is the truth. <laughs> but Esther just doesn't. She goes into the palace and she just eats all the food. Um, she's lining up now to have sex with someone who's not um, her husband. She's lining up to have sex with someone who's not Jewish, which in Jewish culture is just terrible. And so you see this comparison between the young Daniel, who's like, no, nah, I will stand up for God, and the young Esther, who totally doesn't stand up for God but you still see God's hand of blessing on both of them, right? Because he loves them. He cares about them. Again, his love for us is not dependent on the stuff we do, on what we do. Yeah, it messes up the relationship, but it doesn't mess up his love for us. The last thing I want to say is um, we're going to see in the coming weeks, I'd encourage you to come back or at least tune into the podcast. In the coming weeks, we're going to see God save an entire nation. So millions and millions of people because a young girl is obedient to God, right? Because a young girl puts her life on the line and trusts in God, and so through her, um, God saves an entire nation of people, which is pretty wild. So I keep coming back to this thought this week. I'll put this on the screen, right? If God can take a disobedient Jewish girl and through her save an entire nation of people, imagine what he can do through you. <laughs> um, hopefully you're not living in disobedience before God. <laughs> if you are... Come and talk to me. Let's have a pray. <laughs> we'll go and sort out some stuff. But um, 
I just kept thinking, again, it's not dependent on us so much. Yeah, we've got to be submissive, submissive to God. Yeah, we've got to want God to use us. But as I keep, and I've read through the book of Esther oh, so many times in the last few weeks, and I just keep seeing this thing of she's just no one. She's just no one, but God comes on and, and the blessing that he puts on her life and the saving of a whole nation that he does through her just makes me go, oh. I just want to say seriously, man, I think some of us, we, we minimize what God could do through us. And some of us go, oh, but it's just me from wherever. <laughs> it's just me with this job. It's just me at uni. It's just me, whatever. And I just want to say to you, oh my gosh, it's not just you. <laughs> It's just you, but it's you empowered by the creator of the universe who loves you more than you will ever understand in this life or the life to come. It's you empowered by God who wants to do awesome things for you. He does want you to be a light to the people around you, to be salt like Joel was saying. And if he can save an entire nation, millions of people, through one obscure, crazy Jewish girl, imagine what he is going to do through you. Imagine the people that he wants to impact and the lives he wants to change through you. Oh, man, let's get excited, eh? Cool. Hey, worship team, come on up. Etu, everyone stand up. Let me pray and then we'll carry on in some worship, eh? Cool. Yeah, let's pray. Your mighty God, I just really call out to you now in the name of Jesus. I pray, if anyone's limiting what I just said, I just really pray against that, eh? Pray against the fact that, that they heard me and that they went, oh, but not me. And that you would remind them, it's you and them. (laughs) Yeah, if it was based on just us, man, we're in big trouble. (laughs) But it's not. It's based on us and you, the Trinity, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, the one who can do anything. (laughs) Yeah, I pray for your guidance to be clear in our hearts, God. Pray for us to be able to hear your voice more and more clearly as we continue to live in obedience before you, God. And what are the awesome things that you want to do through us? And, and help us to clarify awesome based on your definition, not ours. I think sometimes we define awesome as, I don't know, preaching and a thousand people get saved or doing something. And it's not that. It's being the most amazing mum at home ever. It's being the most awesome employee and just being an incredible light for God in that place. Um, it's being a dad that finishes work on time and gets home to be with his whanau rather than, oh, I'll keep working to earn and, oh, I don't know, God. Yeah, thank you that um, I think it's us who limit you so often. It's certainly never you who limit what you want to do in us, God, and through us. Can you just keep guiding us to see that you are an incredible God who loves us and cares about us and desires to do amazing things for us always. May I praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.